All right, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. And to just set that in context so we keep the flow of the story in mind, in chapter 11 and 12, Matthew is putting together a series of snapshots that show mixed reactions to Jesus and help us see really this idea of growing opposition to his ministry that was highlighted in the last teaching block and now begins to play itself out more fully in his ministry. And so in the last section, Matthew chapter 11, 1 through 19, it focused on Jesus' tribute to John the Baptist, as well as John the Baptist's question about Jesus, but it ended by emphasizing the fickle nature of the Jewish response to Jesus and the fickle nature of the response to John the Baptist. And it led to really opposition and hostility. What Jesus essentially said is that the people around him in all the cities and the towns where he's been preaching or teaching, they're like pouting, whiny, complaining kids, and nothing's going to make them happy. It's really their way or no way. And so they didn't like John the Baptist because he was too serious and austere. They don't like Jesus because he's too much of a party animal. They just don't like anything. And it has to do with their heart. Um, This then leads directly into this present section we're going to look at in this recording, where Jesus condemns the cities where he's done most of his ministry, and who should have therefore been the most uh, receptive of his ministry. They've seen the most miracles. They've heard the most teaching. They should have been the most eager to respond, but they weren't. And that's where we pick up here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. It says, Then he, Jesus, began to reprimand the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they didn't repent. And so he kind of uh, offers a prophetic denouncement on these three cities where he has spent most of his ministry, most of his time, and yet most of the people did not repent and turn towards Jesus. And so he says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Prophetic denouncement on these two cities. These were two towns that were just to the north of Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum is Jesus' hometown where he spends most of his time and in the area around it. Chorazin is about 2.5 miles north of Capernaum, inland a bit from the sea. Bethsaida was a fishing village. It's actually the birthplace of Peter and Andrew, Philip, and possibly James and John. You can see that in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 44 and 1221, that these guys were born there, but now they base their life and their fishing business out of Capernaum. But it's their hometown. And and so Bethsaida was this fishing village that was just a few miles north and a little bit east of Capernaum. Both towns are noted as places where Jesus has done most of his ministry, and yet the people, at least the majority of them, did not repent. And so Jesus goes on and says this. He says, For if the miracles that occurred in you had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Again, Jesus is making sort of like a prophetic denouncement of these two towns. So he compares them to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were two Gentile cities to kind of the northwest of Galilee, out towards the Mediterranean Sea, and both cities were condemned by the Old Testament prophets for their wickedness. 
And yet Jesus says, if those two cities had seen and heard and experienced what Chorazin and Bethsaida had experienced, those two cities would have repented. So even though they were noteworthy, wicked cities, Jesus is saying, they're less hard-hearted than you guys are in Chorazin and Bethsaida. Jesus then says in verse 22, Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Seemingly implying that in some sort of way, uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida are going to get a worse sort of um, judgment than Tyre and Sidon because of the opportunity that was given to them and their rejection of the very Messiah himself. Jesus goes on in verse 23 and says something similar about Capernaum, like the town where he's spending most of his time. He says, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. And Jesus actually evokes by the way he words his uh, denouncement of Capernaum, he evokes a taunt against Babylon from Isaiah 14. So if you recall your Old Testament history, you know that Babylon is the kingdom that devastated Jerusalem, uh, burnt down the temple, and deported a whole host of people into Babylonian captivity. And that's sort of what ended the kingship uh, and the dynasty and all of that and led to foreign oppression and occupation for the last 500 years. And so Babylon became the archetype for opposition to God and God's people. And in Isaiah 14, God, looking forward, tells of a time when Israel will mock Babylon for its arrogance. They'll mock them because Babylon thought they were exalted to the heavens and thus indestructible, but they will be destroyed and brought down to Hades. This is what's said in Isaiah 14. The Hebrew word for Hades is Sheol, the realm of the dead, and thus their destruction. And so when Jesus says what he says about Capernaum, he really calls to mind, harkens back to what's said about Babylon in Isaiah 14. And in doing that, Jesus is really saying that Capernaum is just like that. They're arrogant, uh, proud, unwilling to repent, and thus they are liable to judgment and destruction. In fact, Jesus goes on and says, For if the miracles that occurred in you, Capernaum, had occurred in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Like Sodom, the great evil city, the very picture of a city destroyed for its wickedness. And Jesus is implying that, they would have listened. Sodom would have listened if, if they had seen what Capernaum had seen. And nevertheless, Jesus says in verse 24, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, notice that in both his denunciation of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, he ends those by referring to a day of judgment. And uh, this refers to a final day of reckoning. And on that day, Scripture affirms that God will vindicate the righteous, that is, his people, those who are now in Christ. He will vindicate them, and he will condemn the wicked. And that phrase, day of judgment, reminds us that if we're going to have the same view of history and the same overall worldview as Jesus, we have to also hold to that same notion that there is a final day of accounting, a final day of reckoning in which mankind is going to be evaluated and held accountable for how they live their lives. Are they in Christ and thus among the righteous or not? 
Now, after denouncing these three cities where most of his miracles have taken place, Jesus then goes on to praise God for those who did receive his message. And it's connected with those denouncements in this way. Basically, it works like this. Cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum should have been the most receptive and yet still didn't repent and listen to Jesus. And likewise, the people who should have been the most prepared that is the learned and the study who knew the most of the scriptures, they refused to see Jesus and the kingdom and respond positively to him. But the small and lowly and ordinary people, they didn't refuse. They're the ones who actually responded positively. And thus, Jesus praises God in this moment for their response. Here's what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, these things referring to his ministry and his message, right? Like you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. When he says the wise and intelligence, what he refers to is the learned and the leaders, those who knew the most, those who should have been the most prepared to receive the kingdom, and yet they didn't. For them, the kingdom is hidden from them. Now, when we hear you have hidden these things from them, we have to understand sort of a tension in what's going on in this story. Uh, We just saw Jesus holds them accountable uh, in verses 20 through 24, and he denounces them for for that. They should have listened, and they're going to be held accountable, but they didn't. And then he says, you've hidden these things from them. And so whatever you have hidden these things from them means, it does not absolve them of culpability or responsibility for their own actions. And so it's this tension between God's sovereignty and yet their freedom in this moment. And so Jesus can say that you've hidden them from them, and yet he can also hold them accountable for it and says that they didn't respond positively. And yet you've revealed it to infants. And when he says infants, or maybe better, little children, we see that Jesus is using this word not literally. He's using it descriptively because it stands in contrast to wise and learned. And so what it describes is the small or the insignificant or the ordinary folks of the day. That's the idea that here's the powerful and the learned and those who should have been most ready for God's kingdom. And then here's the small and the insignificant people, the Yam Haaretz in the language of the day, right? The people of the land is what that means among the Jews. It was just the common, ordinary people who were poor, didn't have much, and couldn't devote their time to studying the scriptures. They're the ones who have actually responded to the kingdom. To them, the kingdom is revealed. It's uncovered, and they can see it. And Jesus praises God that uh, that he did this and that it was actually his will. In fact, look at verse 26. It says, Yes, Father. For this way was well-pleasing in your sight. It pleased you, God, that the average and the ordinary people would be the ones who are flocking to Jesus. And the leaders of these cities and the learned in these cities, they're the ones who missed it. Jesus goes on and says in verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son 
and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. And so verse 27 speaks of the unique intimacy between God the Father and Jesus the Son, and that they have this this deep, intimate relationship where the Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father. And the only way to know the Father is through the Son. He's the one who determines who to reveal him to. And that raises the question, well, who does the Son determine to reveal the Father to? Well, listen to verse 28. It says this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Who does the Son determine to reveal the Father to? All, particularly all who are weary and burdened. That is, literally, all who are laboring and toiling whose life just feels like it's just hard and it's work and they're striving and they're laboring and toiling just to survive. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and my yoke is comfortable, this image of a yoke literally referred to a farmer who would put two oxen together and put a yoke around both their necks to hold them together and then plow his field. That's literally what it referred to. A person might carry a yoke on his shoulders, which was a wooden bar as a way to transport something. It had buckets on both ends and you might put something in those buckets and it was referred to as a yoke. Well, Jews of the day applied this image of carrying a yoke to obeying the law or to following somebody's teaching, a a rabbi's teaching. And so the imagery here was very familiar, and Jesus is using it to describe becoming his disciple. That's what he's saying when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's saying, become my disciple, follow my teaching, thus learn from me. And this actually reminds us something that's very important about being a Christian, particularly uh, if we are going to use the language of discipleship. That's what it means to be a Christian. Fundamentally, it means to become a disciple of Jesus. And at the center of that is this fact that Jesus is our teacher. We're learning from him. By taking his yoke upon us means we're going to submit to his teaching and he's going to be our rabbi and we're going to be his Talmud, his disciple, and we're going to learn from him. And that means that you can't really say you have faith in Jesus if you don't listen to what he says. But if we have faith in Jesus, if we have confidence in him, then we'll believe he knows what he's talking about and we'll actually begin to listen to his teaching and put it into practice. And that's what it means to take our yoke upon Jesus and become his disciple. And so this call here in verse 28 and 29 is a call to become Jesus' disciple. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. This is a call to become his disciple. And Jesus offers that to anyone and everyone who is toiling and laboring through life. Come to me and learn from me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And why is this good news? Why is it good news to learn from Jesus? Well, he follows that up by saying, because, right, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Literally, because 
I am gentle and humble in heart. He's gentle. He's meek. He's not proud, not oppressive, not overbearing. He's not a heavy-handed taskmaster. That's the idea of a gentle, meek, humble. And you will find, he says, rest for your souls. Your soul refers to your whole being, your whole self. Like you're laboring and you're toiling and you're burdened. And now you have the offer of rest. And it's connected with Jesus as rabbi and us as his disciple. This is what God desired and promised for his people. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 says this. This is what the Lord says. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and then walk in it. Then you will find a resting place for your souls. And Jesus says, that's him. He'll lead you in those paths. He'll help you walk in the good way and you'll find rest for your souls. Because, he says in verse 30, my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. Comfortable means suitable. It's, it fits right. It's easy to wear because it fits you. What Jesus is offering you in his teaching is how to really be human and it fits because Jesus knows what it means to be human. He knows how we're designed to operate. And so it's suitable. It's fitting. It's comfortable. It's easy to wear. And then he says, my burden is light. And the contrast with light is obviously heavy. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, 4, the Pharisees, well, they add heavy loads to people, but Jesus' load is light. What he is going to call you to carry is light. And we'll see in the immediate next uh, chapter, we'll see some Sabbath controversies that follow where the Pharisees are adding heavy burdens and Jesus is trying to lighten the load. And so just to summarize this section, we see in the first half, Jesus denouncing three cities who should have been most receptive to his teaching. And the fact is most of the people weren't, especially the leaders and those who knew the most, they weren't. And then in the second half, we see Jesus praising God for the fact that there were people who did respond and it was the small, insignificant, ordinary folks of the day. And God opened their eyes to see that. And Jesus calls them to himself to be disciples. He calls anybody who feels weary and burdened to himself and he offers rest for their souls. And so as we reflect on this chapter, let's just Think about this theme of rest in Jesus. Somehow, those who heard Jesus teach more than anywhere else and who saw most of his miracles refused him. Somehow, those who knew the scriptures most and should have been the most ready to receive him missed him. And that should serve as a cautionary tale for us. Seeing miracles or knowing a lot does not guarantee sincere, genuine, humble faith. And that's what happened in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Also, there's lots of ideas about uh, spiritual growth and what's needed for spiritual growth. And many of them are very helpful. In fact, I just finished a book myself, a brand new book on that theme. Lots of helpful stuff. Uh, and most of these books recommend some form of spiritual discipline, spiritual practices for us, things like Sabbath or fasting or scripture memory, right? And those practices can be good and helpful. In fact, I would say they're necessary to our spiritual growth. But this is really important. When those practices become an end in themselves, 
when they become the thing that we're all about, practicing the Sabbath, fasting regularly, memorizing scripture, right? When they become an end in themselves, they ironically actually lead us away from Jesus. And thus they lead us away from the easy yoke that Jesus offers. Now, such spiritual practices, as I said, are helpful and necessary. We don't drift into Christ-likeness. We don't drift into discipleship. And thus, those practices are necessary and helpful. But here's the key thing. They're necessary and helpful only insofar as they're a means of deepening our connection to Jesus and creating space for God to work in our life, in our heart, in our mind to transform us. So when they're a means of learning from Jesus, they're useful and helpful. When they become the focus themselves, they become a real problem. But when we use them to arrange our life around Jesus and to fix our gaze upon Jesus and uh, take Jesus' yoke upon us and learn from him, when we do that, we can actually find rest for our weary souls. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that only is possible because of the generous support of people just like you. So if you're one of those who makes this ministry possible, thanks a ton for your generosity and your prayers. And if you've been blessed or impacted by this ministry in any sort of way, would you prayerfully consider donating to help this ministry continue to grow and flourish and reach more and more people all around the world? You can do so by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com. Up in the right, there'll be a give button. You can click the give button or there'll be a sign up for the study hub. Either way, you can set up a monthly donation to support this ministry or through the give button, you can give a one-time gift as well. Thanks a ton in advance for your support.